Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more and maybe help brother out with buying a book or two. So uh, sit back, relax, I'm going to tell you a story. Hey friends, it's Michael Kingswood, and it's story time, and the hair is just getting longer and longer. <sighs> doing the grand experiment, in case you had noticed the last few weeks. Those of you who are doing the podcast, not the videos, you haven't. Um... I haven't cut my hair since the end of, since Thanksgiving. Um, mostly because, same reason I did the beard, is because uh, 20 years in the Navy, I was always having to maintain the, the high and tight. I didn't have to maintain the high and tight, but I liked to. Um, and I just want to change things up. You know, I haven't had as long as the hair has ever been. You know, as you can see, it does the, the blonde afro thing. And when I was a kid, I could relate to the greatest American hero pretty well. If you guys, any of you guys from the 80s, remember that show? That was great. Um, but no, I'm just, I said, what the heck? See what it does. Maybe if get it long enough, it'll fall and get long flowing Thor locks or something like that. Or maybe not. I'm starting to get to the point where I'm cringing looking in the mirror. But my daughter's like, no, daddy, grow it out. It has to be down to your shoulder. And grow your hair, your beard longer. Then you'll look like a gangster. And I'm thinking, um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but a lot of tell, people tell me they like it. So I guess we'll continue on for now. It's not too terribly cringeworthy. Although I guess it could be shaped better. Ah, whatever. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that's why you tune in here, right? To hear about my hair and to, uh, See what else I have going on. But uh, hey, as long as I'm talking about what else I had going on, last week was a pretty good week. Uh, so I've been doing these podcasts and videos for what, almost a year and a half now. And actually, it is a year and a half now. And it struck me a few months ago as I was grousing about not having the money to pay voice actors for audiobooks. And I was like, hey, dummy, you've been reading all your stories on this podcast for the last year, why don't you use those recordings for audiobooks? So I went and uh, listened to a bunch of the early ones in Moon Boy Do They Suck. <laughs> wow. Talk about horrible, horrible recordings. But hey, I was just getting started. didn't know what I was doing. I still don't really know what I'm doing, but I have managed to figure out some aspects of it. Got most of the excessive noise down and I've learned to trim out you know, things like, you know, swallows and weird mouth sounds and stuff. Um, which I do that in the portion of me reading the uh, story where all you see is the, the cover, not the video portion of me here before and after, because then that would just look weird. And to be honest, with the idea of porting all the... Uh, me reading stuff into an audiobook, that's the part that really matters. So I finished up, as you know, Passing the Night, 
and I last night I, last week I started the Pericles conspiracy. So I went back and read through my listened through my uh, recordings of passing, and the first one, man, I had the gain too high on that on the mic or something because there was a whole lot of white noise in that. But the others sounded pretty decent, so I re-recorded the first part of Passing the Night, did front and back matter, opening closing credits, and some other stuff. Modified the cover to uh, be audiobook sized, and on, over the weekend I uploaded it to Find Away Voices to go to everywhere in the world in uh, audiobook form as the author narration edition. And we'll see how that goes. If they determine that it meets their quality wickets, then hey, cool! I am now good enough to produce audiobooks officially. Yay! Uh, so, as we continue on the podcast, you can anticipate that I will, as I complete additional stories here, uh, next port them over to be audiobooks. What does that mean for you? That means I think I'm going to get through. I'm going to think I'm going to get through the Pericles conspiracy quite a bit faster than I initially planned. You know, 60 chapters in it. And I was like, yeah, I could take a year on this, one chapter per week. But if I want to get that audiobook done, maybe it'll be more like two or three, depending on the length of the chapters. Uh, we'll probably do two today, and uh, maybe three. We'll see how I feel, and then we'll uh, continue on from there. So, speaking of the Pericles Conspiracy, when last we left our heroine, Joe, uh, it was the end of chapter one, and we just met her. And she got home after a hard day, getting harassed by the reporter at the bar, and she gets called into work for some kind of emergency or something. They're manning up the ECC, whatever that is, we'll find out here as we get into chapter two. So, sit back, enjoy. I'll talk to you on the flip side. The Pericles Conspiracy. Written by me. Read by me. Chapter 2. Emergency Control. Corporate headquarters of McAllister Stellar Transport was located just outside the Quito Launch Complex fence line on the south side of the city. A sprawling complex of just over 20 acres housed the corporate buildings nestled together inside a guarded wall, a large central tower that stood some 50 stories in height, seven smaller outbuildings, and the cargo warehouses at the back of the campus along the fence line with the launch complex. The entire complex, with the exception of the warehouses with their railway terminals and sprawling parking lots for heavy-lift trucks, was carefully maintained and planted with the finest greenery available on any of the known habitable worlds. Paved walkways joined the various buildings. No vehicles were allowed inside the campus except for the chief executives and the cargo trucks but the truck roads were concealed from sight behind carefully planted trees in front of stout concrete walls. It was a quick five-minute cab ride from Joe's condo in the light evening traffic. This time of night, more vehicles were going from the campus than toward it. She could have walked it in about a half hour, and most days she did, but between the weather and the urgency of Harold's message, she hopped into the first cab she could find. The guards at the campus entrance noted her identity as she approached and waved her through with only a cursory glance. Supposedly, the process would be quicker and easier with the new implants, but she never had any problems with the identichips in her security badge or holocard. The Emergency Control Center, ECC, was located on the 30th floor of the main tower. The lift from the ground floor brought her up with barely a whisper. The noise inside the ECC was quite a bit louder. Large status displays dominated the wall directly to the left of the entrance. A glance showed her they were being updated by the latest feeds from the stellar Lagrange Point navigation satellites, as well as those from a pair of Starliners, Chamberlain and Leonov. 
Workstations for the various support organizations were scattered around the floor below. Directly opposite the status displays on a raised platform above the support workstations, the command table was fully manned by the usual people, except for the incident commander station at the center. Li Wu Xin, her principal assistant, was sitting there and looked relieved when she walked in the door. Joe, where have you been? Wu Xin asked, echoing Harold's earlier words as she walked up to the incident commander's station. He stood up, tapping the control console to log out of the command and control voice network as he did. Joe didn't bother to answer Wu Xin's question. It didn't matter anyway. She settled down into the command chair and inserted the earbud resting there specifically for her use. Most of the other principals had database implants, so they didn't need one. What's the situation? Wu Xin leaned over her shoulder as he filled her in. The Hephaestus suffered a containment breach in her fusion core, took out the after third of the ship. They managed to close off the airtight bulkheads, but they're without propulsion and adrift. Son of a bitch! Any casualties? The shift engineer and a reactor tech were in the access tunnel troubleshooting the problem when it blew. And the passengers? Crowd suspension is uninterrupted. All indications are they're fine, for the moment. Joe breathed a sigh of relief. When did this happen? Earlier today. The distress signal reached us this afternoon. Have we notified next of kin? The casualty assistance office is beginning the process, but they have not yet made contact. Very well. Joe tapped the command screen and called up the Hephaestus's manifest. They only left two weeks ago. Their velocity can't be that high yet. Wu Xin shook his head. No, a little under 12,000 kilometers per second. That was something, at least. The most dangerous portion of any Starliner's voyage was the initial acceleration away from port. When the plasma generators that powered the main engines were in standby, the ship's reactor plant operated at only a fraction of its rated power. But during acceleration, it gradually increased its power output until it reached 100% in order to achieve an even acceleration as relativistic effects increased the ship's mass. And it did so for just about a full year in order to achieve nominal cruising speed of 95% of the speed of light. If anything were to go wrong, it was most likely to happen at those higher power levels. And while a rescue from a mishap during the deceleration phase was relatively simple, a mishap during acceleration was a different matter entirely. Two months out from the originating star system, it would be virtually impossible to mount a rescue, since the distances involved and the speeds required for intercept were beyond the capabilities of most conventional rescue vessels. And, of course, by the time the ship reached the destination star, if it ever did, everyone on board would be long dead. Joe inwardly gave thanks for small mercies that this disaster had not occurred a few weeks from now. Two public funerals would be bad enough. At least there was still a chance to avoid 5,000. Have you had a tug powered up? Wu Xin nodded. Tugs T3 and T8 will be underway in 15 minutes. Joe nodded and waved him away. He took a seat at a support console behind the command table. Tapping the control console to log into the command and control voice network, Joe spoke up. This is Captain Josephine Ishikawa. I have relieved as incident commander. After the initial burst of activity... The next several weeks within the ECC were less frantic and exciting, but by no means easy. There were countless details to manage, from interfacing with the various levels of government to rerouting incoming starliners into a holding orbit so the tugs could have unimpeded access to the docking facilities, to offering official condolences to the families of the dead crew members. And, of course, there were the press conferences. As incident commander, Joe was obliged to sit beside Harold each afternoon and field questions, each more inane and brainless than the last. How in the hell was she supposed to know what the people stuck on board the Hephaestus were feeling about their situation? 
How the hell did that news bimbo think they were feeling? Each press conference was an exercise in frustration, and she often left with her jaw aching from grinding her teeth so hard. Joe understood where the reporters were coming from. They had their deadlines and were fighting for ratings so they could keep their jobs. But really, would it kill them to at least review basic physics before coming up with their questions? After the first week, with nothing new happening and nothing more dramatic to do than wait for the tugs to rendezvous with the stricken vessel, Harold, at the press corps' request and to Joe's relief, moved the press conferences from daily to twice a week. There was another brief flurry of press interest when the tugs made up with Hephaestus and began the long, slow process of redirecting the Starliner back toward the Sol system. But when it all went according to plan and no one else was killed, their interest quickly faded once again. When Hephaestus docked, it was almost anticlimactic. The news media noticed, of course. But the coverage was light, limited to blurbs on the evening news shows and little else. Of course, the docking was not the end of the job by any means, but with the crisis stabilized, it was time to stand down the ECC. The normal command and control system could handle it from here. Joe had spent the last two and a half months living out of the ECC and her personal office on the 35th floor. She slept on a couch in her office and showered and changed clothes, using spare clothing she kept in her office just for that purpose, in the employee gymnasium, which was located in one of the outlying buildings on the campus. She was more than ready for a long bath in her own bathtub and then a little vacation. Before the crisis hit, she had planned to go up to Boston to visit Carlton and Allison. They had both been as disappointed as she when she canceled, but they understood. They had lived the Starfarer's lifestyle their whole lives up until a year ago. It still seems strange to think those two wouldn't be returning to space with her when she got underway again in a little more than two years, and to think that when she returned, they would both be in their late 70s, suddenly, from her perspective, older than she was. It was odd, and more than a little sad for her, but it was their decision and they had made it for their own reasons, so who was she to judge? As soon as she finished the last details in the ECC, Joe called Harold and informed him that she was going to take her vacation. He raised no objections, so she booked herself on the next flight to Boston, leaving early the next morning. Allison was thrilled when Joe called her to tell the news. It was obvious Allison wanted to chat more, but as much as Joe enjoyed the discourse, she was exhausted. So she begged off, promising they would have all the time they needed to catch up when she arrived. Chapter 3 Old Friends Carlton Hirsch met Joe at the baggage claim in Logan Airport. She was just turning away from the carousel, pulling her checked bag behind her when he saw her and waved with a grin. She returned the grin in kind, her face brightening as it always did when she smiled and gave him a hug in greeting. Looking good, Captain, he said, then winced at the look of reproach on her face. Sorry, I mean, you look good, Joe. Try as he might, and no matter how often she told him to do otherwise, he always found himself addressing her by her title when talking to her, almost without realizing it. Serving under her command aboard Pericles for five years was hard to get past, but he was out of that game now, wasn't he? Good to see you, Carl, she said, the reproachful look changing to a familiar, friendly smile. How are Allison and the kids? She's fine. Tim's enjoying first grade a lot. He has a girlfriend. Carlton found himself shaking his head in amusement at that. Malcolm's starting to say a few words, or at least I think they're words. You didn't have to come all the way out here to meet me, you know. I've ridden the tea before. Carlton waved off the comment dismissively. Least I can do. You've had a tough few weeks. They stepped outside into the crisp winter afternoon. Carlton noticed Joe shivering, heck nearly convulsing, as she pulled her jacket tight about herself. Too much time along the equator is making her blood thin, he thought. Not that he didn't find it a bit chilly for his taste as well. He was parked in a short-term lot. It only took a few minutes to reach his car. 
Joe whistled appreciatively when she saw it, a brand new Mercedes, painted in a green so dark it was nearly black. Not bad, Carl. Airlines treating you well, I see. He chuckled. Allison paid for it. Allison was an attending at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital and made much more money than he did as a senior instructor at Delta's Orbital Flight Academy. He could not complain about his work schedule, though. The drive from Logan to his and Allison's house took a bit less than an hour. It was after rush hour, but someone from out town would not believe it from the number of vehicles on the roads. Most people commuted on the T or in automated taxis or public transport buses, but even still, the roads through town were almost always packed. Eventually, he turned right off the riverway onto Longwood Avenue and into the residential area adjacent to the medical district. It was like driving back in time. The rest of the city had long ago turned into towering sky-rises, but here, the residents still maintained old, quaint homes on quiet, wooded streets. They pulled into the driveway, and Carlton helped Joe with her baggage. Allison was waiting on the porch, beaming a wide smile. She and Joe embraced fondly and walked into the house, chatting away already. Typical, Carlton chuckled to himself as he trailed behind and lugged the bags up the stairs and into the house. Allison had dinner ready, a marvelous concoction of braised beef, simmered greens, seasoned mashed potatoes, dinner rolls, and a fine cabernet that they had decanted earlier in the afternoon. And, of course, there was masked-up baby food for little Malcolm, who proudly wore his meal on his bib before Allison finally gave up trying to pilot any more starships into the tiny docking bay that was his mouth. After dinner, the ladies took Malcolm to the family room while Carlton took Tim upstairs to get ready for bed. The usual routine of bath, pajamas, and bedtime story went off without a hitch, and before long, Carlton kissed his son on the forehead goodnight and shut the door. When he got back downstairs, Allison and Joe were deep into another bottle of wine. Malcolm was lying on Allison's lap, drowsy eyes halfway closed into sleep, that he was clearly fighting. Carlton gestured to the little guy. Want me to carry him up? No, he's fine. Come join us, replied Allison, pointing to a filled glass that was sitting on the end table next to his chair. Settling down into his chair, Carlton took a sip from the glass and smiled. It was a Malbec from Argentina, one of his favorites. So, ladies, what are we talking about? Not much, just reliving some old sea stories. Carlton had always found it funny how starfarers called tales of what happened on board the Starliners sea stories. There was no denying that many nautical traditions had translated over into the culture and procedures of operating spacecraft. All the same, to still use the term after all this time was strangely amusing. The conversation lasted late into the night, only interrupted a few minutes when Carlton carried Malcolm upstairs once he was good and fully asleep. But after a while, Carlton noticed Joe drifting off into her own world. Frowning, he glanced at Allison, who shrugged slightly. Joe, is everything okay? She gave a little start. Oh? Oh, yes, fine, thank you. My thoughts were just wandering. Where to? queried Allison. Joe took another drink of wine and was silent for a long moment. Then she asked, Do either of you ever think about our last shift? Surprised, Carlton shared another look with Allison. Of course we think about it. How could we not? But, well... Allison picked up his slack. It's out of our hands now. We're not supposed to talk about it, so we don't. Joe nodded slowly. I hadn't thought about it for a long time. I purposely kept myself from thinking about it. But a few weeks ago, a reporter came by, asking questions. Alarm bells went off in Carlton's mind. You didn't tell him anything. Of course not. You haven't heard from him, have you, Jeremy Reynolds? Both he and Allison shook their heads. Does he know anything? Just conjecture, and even that is far from the truth. It got me thinking, though. Well, that's something, at least. Carlton shook his head. What did Harry say about it? 
Joe took another drink. I haven't told him yet. Allison's eyes widened in shock, and Carlton knew his were as well. You haven't? Joe, you know the procedure on this. I know, I know. Joe stood up and strode over to the window. From her gait alone, Carlton could tell she was annoyed. I'll tell him when I get back, but look. She turned to look back at them, fully back in the present, and taking her I-mean-business tone. This guy might come calling. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, replied Carlton. Joe stayed with them for three days, but they never again spoke of what happened on their last shift aboard Pericles, or of Jeremy Reynolds. It was a fun visit. She had been to Boston before, but it had been years. So, for those few days, Carlton and Allison got to be tourists in their own town, showing her all the sights. Joe's flight back to Quito departed early in the morning on the fourth day. Once again, Carlton drove her. They sat in silence for most of the trip to Logan, listening to the morning news. When they pulled up into the passenger offload area, Joe smiled and clasped his hand. Thanks for the hospitality, Carl. It's been great seeing you two again. You too, Captain. Don't be a stranger. Then she walked away, into the terminal. Carlton waited a minute in case she forgot something in the car, but she didn't return, so he drove off. When he got back home, he found Allison just returning from dropping Tim off at school. She make it okay? Carlton nodded. Ought to be in the air by now. You're heading back up to Luna tomorrow morning, right? Yes, but only for a week this time. She'll be back for Tim's birthday. What will I do without a babysitter during the day? Carlton chuckled and shook his head. Good to know I'm love for who I am. Allison smiled and gave him a kiss on the cheek. See you this afternoon. Then she headed out for work. Carlton spent the day taking care of Malcolm, as he did most days when he was at home and Allison at work. It was a pleasure for him and Malcolm both. The little guy cooed and giggled as they played, and occasionally babbled the beginnings of a word. But as the day wore on, Carlton's mood grew darker. As he looked at his little boy playing, the conversation from four nights ago came back to mind, and he started thinking about what had happened on board the Pericles, and about his friend, the man his son was named after. And then there were the things they had been given and what they had been asked to do. What had become of those things, he wondered, after the government took over? He would probably never know. The lift door opened, and Joe stepped out onto her floor. Pulling her suitcase behind her, she walked slowly toward her condo, yawning into the back of her hand as she went. It had been a long flight, made the worst by weather delays over Columbia. It was almost one o'clock in the morning. More than three hours later than she thought she'd be getting home, and she had a meeting at 8.30. She reached her door and pressed her hollow card against the door control. The identichip interfaced with the locking mechanism, and the door slid open. Hello, Joe. Shocked, Joe jumped backwards, landing in a defensive stance as she turned toward the deep voice. It registered in her head that the voice was familiar in the same instant that she saw the man standing there, leaning casually against the hallway wall. He was tall dressed in khaki slacks and a dark blue collared shirt. He had a lean runner's body, dark skin, and close-cut black hair that grew in tight curls. His face was narrow, but not unattractive. His eyes were dark, his gaze direct and intelligent. As she landed, he grinned, revealing gleaming white teeth. She knew him at a glance, but there was one problem. He was dead. All right, well, I sort of have to apologize on this one. I got started recording this last week. I got a little delayed. And then it was time to go from my monthly business trip to Philadelphia. I brought my mic and my laptop with me. Intended to do a whole bunch of recording. And then, you know, normally, when I'm in a hotel, the actually acoustics are actually pretty decent. But this time, 
right outside my window, I was on the first floor, right outside the window there was this humming going continuously. I couldn't figure out what it was. I think maybe it was the AC unit. I'm not sure. But it would have made for crappy sound. So I ended up deciding to not finish the recording and I've gotten it done this week. So I kind of kind of missed last week and apologize for that. I'll make it up. I'll do a second one this week and life will be good. But anyway, we're now uh, pretty well into the whole thing with the Pericles conspiracy thing here and Hey, look at that! A dead man showing up at Joe's door. The plot begins to thicken. Hopefully you enjoyed these two chapters and come back next time. We'll continue on the story. You can, of course, go buy the book in ebook or print. Anywhere good books are sold. But the best place, of course, is from my site. Go buy michaelkingswood.com and click on the bookstore link. Or go to my publishing site, ssnstorytelling.com in the shop there and you can uh, pick it up and life will be good if you don't want to do that but still want to hook me up with some dough and you like the podcast listen all the time come by michaelkingswood.com and sign up to be a sponsor and member of the site works kind of like patreon in that it's uh, a monthly deal and i give you little perks for uh, various levels uh run it's run through a wordpress plugin and paypal so it's easy for you and hmm, makes decent uh little bonus cash for me if you're so inclined. Otherwise, please tell all your pals about this. Uh, like, subscribe, share, leave reviews anywhere you can. I'll talk to you next week. Till then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you, only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music, copyright Gene Paul Zoggy, licensed through stockmusic.net, all rights reserved.